What happens when you put two experts behind mics to match wits on the current state of financial services, the economy, investments, and more? From the American College of Financial Services, this is Wealth Managed. Hello, I'm Michael Finca. I'm a professor at the American College of Financial Services and David Blanchett, the head of retirement research at Morningstar. Welcome, David. Thanks for having me. Lots of lots of energy there, Michael, for that opening. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just so excited to talk about my my favorite subject, annuities, which reminds me, as I was checking my Gmail before I came to do this podcast, there was a wonderful reminder from one of my best friends, a guy named Ken, reminding me that, that annuities were evil and that I'm pretty much an idiot if I would consider buying an annuity. And as we know, the annuities are a somewhat controversial topic. There's many differences of opinions, but many people have very passionate opinions about annuities. And I would say that among economists, I was just at the Allied Social Sciences meeting, the American Finance Association meeting in San Diego, and there was a great presentation by Jim Paterba, who is at MIT, as we both know. Jim was talking about the fact that fewer Americans are annuitizing today than they did even 20 years ago. In the TIA system, it's gone from something like 50% of workers annuitized back in 2000. We're now down to about 19%. I think one of the reasons is because of all the negative press that has surrounded the idea, the concept of annuitization. And I think a lot of people might be surprised that at the conference, there was really no discussion at all in that session about the value of annuitization or the value of annuities. Because among economists, this is not even really an argument that everybody knows that you can prove mathematically that annuitization is the most efficient way to generate a safe income in retirement. And the reason is because you don't know how long you're going to live. And if you don't know how long you're going to live, how do you decide how much you can spend every period? So the best way to do it is to just pull your money together with an insurance company and then spend the exact same amount of money every period. And then the insurance company prices it as if you live to the average longevity. And if you live longer, then you continue to get income payments. So you essentially you get to live better and not have to worry about running out of money. But Annuities are a very complex topic. That's a very simple product, David. And how many of these simple annuity products are actually sold in the marketplace today? You know, not too many. You know, it's funny that you mentioned your an email from your good buddy, Ken. From my perspective, among advisors, like annuities are the most controversial topic. Would you, would you agree with that? I think it's right up there. We'll have a we'll have a session on benchmarking sometime where we can talk about that <laughs> controversial topic. <laughs> annuities annuities are up there and it, a lot of it depends on the type of financial advisor you are. For me it's more of whenever I talk to advisors there's there's just such strong opinions about the role they can potentially play in a portfolio like nothing else that I talk about creates the same kind of reaction as annuities. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that there are so many annuities that are perhaps uncompetitive. So you're is that a nice way of putting it? So I would say, so, you know, my, my take on this is a lot of annuities do suck, right? You know, but here's the thing. A lot of ETFs are terrible. A lot of mutual funds are terrible. Like, isn't it the, the job of the advisor to have human capital to be able to help clients, you know, determine which products work for them? And so my problem with like people that quote unquote hate annuities is like, you're kind of assuming that you don't have the ability to determine what is a good or bad annuity and then recommend them to a client. You're just dismissing the the entire product type outright, which would be like saying, I'm not going to use mutual funds because 
you know, some of them have 3% expense ratio. But I think a lot of advisors have a good point that many times clients who buy annuities believe that they're buying something and are buying something else. And in fact, you can really split annuities between two categories. One category that is more focused on accumulation and changing the distribution of potential return outcomes. And then another category whose primary purpose is to provide lifetime income. And that's really the second category is what economists think about when they think about annuities. But I'm I'm guessing that the majority of annuities that are sold today are more in the former category. You know, there is the accumulation focus, the decumulation focus. I guess my take is, is that, well, it's true that a lot of people that sell annuities don't sell good products. In theory, like all financial advisors, regardless of how they're paid or their role, should be able to determine the appropriate product, select a quality product, and explain to clients how they work. Now, that might mean you don't recommend the really complex fixed index annuities with 18 kinds of step-ups. But, you know, I guess taking a step back, like my my biggest issue with, with this, you know, do annuities suck or are they terrible, is that you're dismissing an entire group of products outright, when in theory, advisors should be like the most qualified folks to figure out who they actually work for. Well, let's take a step back and think, what, what advantage does an institution provide through an annuity product? And there's really two primary advantages that you get from the product structure. One is that the, you, you transfer all of the idiosyncratic longevity risk that you bear in retirement to an institution. Why bear it yourself? You get no added benefit in terms of lifestyle by accepting that idiosyncratic risk of not knowing how long you're going to live. It's so much more efficient to transfer that to an institution who can then pool that risk among a large group of retirees. And to the institution, it's not an idiosyncratic risk for them because they can pool it among a bunch of different annuitants. So with a pension, whoever creates the pension knows that some of the employees are going to die when they're younger. Some of them are going to die when they're older. But you don't stake your survivability as an insurance company on a single annuitant. You can spread out that risk. But the single annuitant, they can't spread out the risk of their own longevity. So they transfer that to an institution. And I think there is this big question about what type of risks for an individual are best addressed by transferring to an institution. Longevity risk is an obvious example of that. I would view it as like if you're building a portfolio, right? We, we all know that, that you shouldn't hold just one stock. You should hold lots of stocks, right? And so within, like within investment risk, there's two kinds of risks. There's idiosyncratic risk and systematic risk. You know, by transferring your longevity risk to the insurance company, there, you, know, you no longer bear idiosyncratic longevity risk. The institution that, that purchases that risk, the insurer, still bears systematic risk. And so it's possible if there's like a, like a three-year jump in longevity, they can stomach that. But to your point, it, it doesn't make sense for individuals to, to bear that entirely. Now, they can bear part of that risk with their assets. But to your earliest point, like among economists, like everyone agrees, right, that, that most people should annuitize more, they're annuitizing less. And one of the best annuities around is Social Security, right? People should delay claiming Social Security longer. But regardless, I think that that what everyone agrees on is regardless of what form that you accomplish the guaranteed income, people need more, a lot more of it than they have today. That's true. And that's a very good point that you make, that deferring Social Security is, in essence, the equivalent of buying more annuitized income and buying an inflation-adjusted annuity, which is even more attractive to an individual. And there's another type of annuity. They don't exist anymore. They're gone. They're all gone. Social Security. 
No, no. Oh, oh, oh. There are no more inflation-adjusted annuities. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. So, so yeah, their, their principal had an inflation-adjusted annuity. And it there was so much print that was spilled on this product, which I think like eight people bought nine, in the history nine of the product. Nine. <laughs> one of them, one of them was V Bodie. Yeah, and uh, and and you know that's that that highlights one of the problems, and that is that the kind of annuities that economists love are the kind of annuities that are very often least attractive to individuals. And advisors very often don't have a, a strong incentive to sell them. And the example I was going to give is a qualified longevity annuity contract, which I think to you and I is, if you were going to design an annuity, that is exactly the kind of annuity that you would want as part of your retirement income plan, yet they are so rare. To me, I don't necessarily get all that hung up in the different, like which which type is the best type? Like, is it a deferred income annuity, an immediate annuity, like some kind of like variable annuity? To me, it's 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 how do we get more advisors interested in considering them is part of the retirement income strategy for their clients, right? Because what concerns me the most are those that just dismiss them outright. And to your point, advisors are going to have certain preferences for different kinds based upon compensation models. What I'm most interested in is figuring out how do we get them more excited about just the entire product category? Because again, it's not right to say that all annuities are bad. And you you can't do on your own what an annuity can do for your client. So there is this idea that, especially as you get older, I mean, you have to decide how long you want your money to last. And if you think about your expenses in retirement, there is a certain swath of expenses that are inflexible. So you've got to pay your property taxes. You've got to pay your insurance. You've got to pay for your health care. All these are inflexible expenses. They're only appropriate for bond type investments. You can't base your ability to to pay your property taxes on how well the stock market does because the stock market just can't reliably deliver that minimum level of returns. You could get unlucky, in which case you can't make those payments. So you got to fund them either with bonds or annuities. And the problem with funding with with them with bonds is you have to decide an age at which if you build a bond ladder, or even if you're withdrawing the money from a bond portfolio, you've got to decide the age at which you're comfortable building that bond ladder too. So for a 65-year-old woman, if that's age 95, then they've still got almost a 25% chance of still being alive. If you build it to age 100, they have about a 9% chance of still being alive. So the question becomes, do you build the bond ladder to the age of 100 and expose the client to a 9% risk of outliving their assets? And at the same time, by building that bond ladder to the age of 100, she's not spending very much money per year. When instead you could, and we priced out annuities uh, and they're remarkably competitive. I mean, basically it is the same price as building a bond ladder to the average expected longevity for a healthy male or female, uh, which may be for the woman age 88 or 89. So you could either for the same price as building the bond ladder to the age 88 or 89, have essentially a 0% chance of running out of money or build it to age 100, not live as well, and still bear that risk of running out of money. Right. So, you know, I'm with you 100%, I guess. But the question, right, is so like, why don't advisors do that, right? Deliver financial planning for every person and every need through our chartered financial consultant education program. Find the tools and skills you need at theamericancollege.edu slash chfc. I mean, to your point, you know, if you compare 
a portfolio of government bonds to an annuity that's priced competitively, the annuity is actually going to win, right? Because they can invest in longer duration corporate securities, whatever else. But but advisors aren't aren't doing this. And to your earlier point, they're doing it less than they have historically at TIA. So like what gives? Like like what what will it take to move advisors in the direction of using them more for clients? Well, one argument, which is, I I think, a little bit odd of an argument for those who hold themselves out as fiduciaries, but one argument is, why would I put a large chunk of my client's assets in a product for which I'm not compensated? So if I buy an immediate annuity, I might have to put away, you know, a quarter or a fifth of my client's wealth in an immediate annuity. If I buy a qualified longevity annuity contract, that's another $130,000 that I'm going to tie up in one of these things. And I think it's important to remember that the money's not gone. The money is actually providing an income every year, and that income every year is taking pressure off the remainder of the investment portfolio. So we've actually done simulations where we find that when you purchase an annuity upfront, the assets under management can actually cross where they otherwise would have been after maybe 10 or 15 years. So essentially you're giving up some AUM at the front end, but you actually gain AUM at the back end because the annuity income is taking pressure off the remainder of your portfolio. You know, I'm just, I'm surprised that you think that how advisors are compensated is going to affect their recommendations. I thought that advisors only kind of did what was in the best interest of their clients. Well, maybe I'm being overly cynical, Dave. No, no, I, there's other I, legitimate no, reasons why I, it's not I, happening. I, so I think I think it's spot on. I mean, I think that you know, I think there's been this perception, right, that fee-based advisors are kind of like holier than advisors that receive commissions. But I mean, I think we all make decisions based upon how we're compensated, and I think that this movement towards a fee-based structure creates a disincentive for advisors to recommend an annuity. If, to your point, it means you know effectively getting rid of a fourth or a half of the portfolio. And so, you know, it could be in the client's best interest, but it's not in the advisor's best interest. And so I don't know if the newer fee-based products out there are going to move the needle, but a lot of times all a client really needs is to delay claiming social security and some kind of deferred income annuity. And that's, and that's all they would have to get. But even then advisors seem hesitant to make those kind of recommendations. Well, hopefully they'll listen to this podcast and that'll move the needle <laughs> a little bit. Um, okay. So, so let, what, so, okay. So let, let's assume they are listening. Like what advice do we give them? You so, okay, I'm an advisor. I, you know, I really like, I build, I build really good portfolios. I'm excellent at selecting mutual funds. Why should I change? You know, you just walk through the academic exercises, you know, in my experience as an advisor or whatever, my clients haven't liked them. How do I position them so that it's a it's a win-win, it's a win for me and it's a win for my client? I think because that's what clients want. If you ask them how what's what importance they place on the rate of return on their overall investment portfolio in retirement it is nowhere near at the top of the list. They want clarity. They want to know how much money they can actually spend every month. They want to know that if the market falls, they don't have to not go out to dinner with their friends. By giving them essentially the the benefit of having a certain amount of money that's going to show up every month, no matter how long they live, that will allow them to live better. And essentially you're giving, you know, you're, you're creating a plan for a client, a retirement income plan that can do something that an investment portfolio alone cannot do. Because if it's an investment portfolio alone, and especially if it's invested in a significant amount of equities, 
there are going to be a certain number of random retirements. We don't know what rates of return we're going to get in retirement, but what we do know is that there are going to be periods in the future where the stock market is going to fall. There are predictable bear markets, and if that happens to your client early on in retirement, I don't think it's well understood among advisors the impact it can have on the client's ability to generate a lifestyle early on in retirement if they get unlucky, especially the first or the second year of retirement. It can have a significant impact on a sustainable withdrawal amount if they get unlucky the first year. And I know, David, you and I actually sat down and estimated the impact of a negative 30% portfolio return the first year of retirement. So we estimated that you have about a 94% chance of being able to sustain the 3% rule throughout retirement because interest rates are lower and stocks are more expensive. We estimate so explain, that it, explain the 3% rule. So the 3% rule is this idea that you can, of a million dollar portfolio, you can take $30,000 out for spending the first year. And then if inflation goes up by 2%, then you can take $30,600 of spending the next year. And it goes up every year by the rate of inflation. And you should not run out of money over the course of either a 30-year retirement or sometimes we'll do random longevity as a way of estimating how many people actually ran out of money. So if you follow the 3% rule, we estimate you've got about a 95 94% of being able to maintain that $30,000 initial amount plus inflation every year. But if you get negative 30% the first year, that safe withdrawal rate goes from a 94% chance of success to a 48% chance of success. So your ability to maintain that lifestyle goes from a 94% likelihood to a 48% likelihood. And what impact then does that have on planning? You're either going to need to reduce your spending or you're going to have to force your client to maintain that risk of potentially running out of money. Why not instead ensure that if they do take risk with their investment portfolio, at least they have some kind of a safety net, a minimum level of lifestyle. And I think it's underappreciated how much more investment risk you can take optimally as long as you've set that base level of income with some sort of an annuity. Get best-in-class preparation for your exam with our CFP Certification Education Program. Start your journey toward this valued designation at the AmericanCollege.edu slash CFP. So, you know, in your opinion, what products should advisors consider? I mean, if it was me, there are a number of annuity products that may, we, this is a much broader conversation, especially when it comes to the accumulation space. And uh, we've done some research on the tax deferral benefit of annuities. I think that's another element of annuitization that's underappreciated. But let's just say you're right at the cusp of retirement and you're thinking about buying an annuity. To me, deferral of Social Security is the most price for a healthy client. Uh, it's the most competitive way to buy annuitized income. Number two, a qualified longevity annuity contract or some other type of deferred annuity. And then three, some kind of well, there's, there's a number of different product structures, but I think it's important to consider a simple single premium immediate annuity as an alternative to whatever portion of your portfolio you were going to invest in a bond ladder anyway. So if you're going to do that, then carve out that portion of your bond portfolio that you were going to use to fund safe spending and instead consider putting it into a, some kind of an immediate annuity. So what happens if an advisor comes across an annuity that's terrible? Like a product with like a like a large surrender penalty, really low rates. Do they keep it? 
do they get rid of it? Well, I think a lot of it depends on what the alternative investment would be. And I think that there are some products and, and I, you know, I, I was just having a conversation with someone who was an expert in the different types of products the other day. And many of the guarantees that are being offered on deferred products, so like deferred um, fixed products, are, are very attractive, almost impossible to replicate with a bond portfolio. Uh, in which case, you better be able to recognize when those things are competitive and there's a tax deferral benefit when they're purchased in a non-qualified account. I think the tendency may be to say, what is this garbage? When the reality may be actually compared to investing in a non-qualified bond portfolio and then perhaps turning the annuity into an income in the future, you might actually be better by keeping that more complex product structure than trying to get rid of it, incurring any surrender charges. Yeah, I think I think the surrender charges are, are a big issue. I mean, I think that that it's really it's really based upon individual products and it's it's hard to generalize, but you know, if you've been on the product, you you may have already paid the you know a lot of the the loads with it, and so it's probably increasingly attractive to hold on to it over a longer time period. But every product's different, so it's kind of hard to generalize. Right, and I would say you know as a closing remark, I think one thing the industry could do that would be very helpful for advisors is to make it easier for an advisor to be able to evaluate the characteristics of that annuity product. There's just so much variation in terms and product characteristics that I think for anybody, including myself, it can be very difficult to estimate, for example, the expected rate of return on a product over time. I mean, like if a rating company were to rate annuities and provide like star ratings for there was something like that. You know, can you imagine what would happen if there was a company like that that existed? It'd be pretty awesome. Yes. <laughs> What's the biggest behavioral beef you think people have when it comes, or one of the biggest beefs they have when it comes to buying annuity? I think it's, it's both consumers and advisors. And that is the idea that if I buy this thing today and I spend $250,000 to provide guaranteed income for the rest of my life, and I only live five years, then I've gotten a really raw deal on my investment. Now, that's, I think, not a tremendously legitimate concern because if I buy one of these products, I can actually spend more and not have to worry about running out of money for five years in retirement. And then if I die early, then how much do I regret having purchased the annuity? Well, not a whole lot because I'm dead. But you may worry about that money that could have gone to your heirs, in which case you can add on some type of a period certain option. And I would, I would suggest almost to every client that they consider a period certain option. And especially if they're young enough and they do it for maybe 10 or 20 years. So you're going to be get, you're going to continue to get this money or your heirs are going to continue to get this money for a period of 20 years, no matter if you're alive or dead. And then, you know, you may always get your premium back because people don't want to have this idea that they spent $250,000 on it and they didn't get $250,000 back. Now, the good news is that adding an option like that, that guarantees that you'll get income no matter what over the next 20 years is not that expensive. Why? Because it's not that likely that you're going to die early on in that 20 year period. So you give up a little bit in terms of income but you gain a lot in terms of overcoming that behavioral barrier to annuitization. I mean, what percent of annuities are, are life only where there's no residual benefit paid out? Like 
10% or less. It really isn't, a, I think, a realistic concern for the vast majority of consumers, right? Yeah, I think it's, it's common. And I don't even know if there is a QLAC on the market available today that doesn't have a return of premium option. Have you seen one? You can always add it on, right? I think it's 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 your decision, but I think to your point, people, you know, for better or for worse, that that fear of dying early exists. But there's a really easy way to get around it. So I think that should not be a reason why you wouldn't consider them as part of our retirement strategy. Right. So Moshe Malevsky has said that you know if you're Vulcan, you would just buy a pure annuity. You wouldn't care about any stuff like that. But most people are human, so they do care about that stuff, and they'll they'll be willing to give up a little bit of income to make sure that they're always going to get their money back. Right. Right. All right. Thanks for joining us for today's podcast. I'm Michael Finca. I'm David Blanchett. Talk to you next time. For more episodes and shows, visit theamericancollege.edu/podcasts. Wealth Managed is a production of the American College of Financial Services. 